All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. There's a Bible on the pew in front of you. If you need one, if you have your phones, your devices, or whatever, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 today. As we take up our offering this morning, if you've brought a paper offering to give, thank you for that. There is a black box at the back of the room that says give on it. You can just drop it off there on your way out today. Otherwise, the electronic ways that you can give are up there on the screen. If you head over to our website, meadowbrook.ca, there's a button in the top right corner that says give, and that will take you where you need to go as well. Uh, A couple of quick announcements before we get into the Word today as well. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to have Terry Bone with us, which is an exciting day every time. And so when I was on sabbatical last year, Terry came in and helped take care of the church while I was gone. So Terry will be here preaching on Sunday morning as well. He's going to be offering a seminar in the afternoon. It'll start at 3 o'clock. It'll be done by dinner time. And the title of the seminar is Mastering Your Money. And he wants to talk about uh, some things that he had in his heart to share with the church last summer and he just ran out of time and wasn't able to get to everything that he wanted to. And so at 3 o'clock, he'll be digging into that. I've heard his teaching on this before. It is awesome stuff, a wonderful teaching, but it brings such a sense of God's peace and God's power when it comes to handling our money and trying to figure out how to do that in a way that honors God and brings his blessing. And so mastering your money at 3 o'clock next Sunday. Um, we're just going to be down in the center. It doesn't cost anything. You don't need to sign up. You can just show up, bring anybody you like, and we're going to have a great day with Terry next week. I also want to just highlight again, this was mentioned already, but I'll hit it again, our Pathways class, which also starts next Sunday. Uh, So this happens over four Sundays from nine o'clock until 10 o'clock, so you'll still be done and ready in time for the service. And Pathways is our class where if you haven't ever been through it, we would love for you to go through it. If you're newer to the church and you've never experienced it, even if you've been here for a while and you've never gone through it, we really like everybody to go through our Pathways class. It's the best possible way to get to know Meadowbrook. And so there is stuff in there about who we are, what we believe, why we do what we do, our vision, our structure, all that kind of thing. It is also our membership class. If you are uh, attending uh, Meadowbrook and you're not a voting member of the church and you would like to be, uh, you have to go through Pathways first. And that's just because we want to make sure you understand us well and get to know us well before you make that decision. We always say if Meadowbrook is your home church, you should be a member. You should take that step into membership. And it's just a way of participating more in the life of your church, voting on things having a say in how things are are done and decisions that are made, Uh, as well as also our baptism class. So if you are a follower of Jesus and have never been baptized in water, that's a step that every believer needs to take. And so we're going to be doing a baptism service in June. And so before you go through that, we'll have you go through Pathways again, just because we want to make sure everyone understands what they're doing. And so going through Pathways doesn't obligate you to any of those things, but it is our prerequisite for that. And so that will start next Sunday in the fellowship room for four Sundays in a row, and we would love to see you out there. All right. Uh, My name is Chris. I don't think I introduced myself yet. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I'll be sharing the word with us this morning on this Easter Sunday here at Meadowbrook Church. We are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we are here to help. And so if you are brand new to Jesus, or whether you've walked with Jesus for a hundred years, there are next steps to take in your spiritual journey, and we want to help you along in those next steps. We focus on that primarily in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. We want to be taking our next steps upwardly in our relationship with him, in our knowledge of him, our understanding of him, our communion of him. We want to be taking our next steps inwardly as he does his work in us, as he transforms us, as he makes us more like Jesus. And then we want to be taking our next steps outwardly as we are living this out, as we are engaging with other people, as we are loving people in this world and loving people in our church. We want to take those next steps as well. 
So, uh, as just to shake things up a little bit today on Easter Sunday, just to do things a little bit differently, I thought we'd talk about the resurrection today, uh, just to, to do it in a bit of a different way. But I always start off my Easter message this way, which is by saying, I stand here upon the conviction that Jesus Christ is alive. And I know many here would stand upon that same conviction. There was a lady at the first church I worked at. This was a church in the Niagara area. I'd grown up in this church. And then uh, once I had grown up and was getting ready to go off to Bible college, my pastor, a man named Terry Bone, who most of you know by now, uh, said, Chris, why don't you not go off to Bible college? Why don't you stay here on staff at the church and we'll pay you to train you to be a good pastor? And I thought, that is a good deal. You're going to pay me to do that? That sounds amazing. I need that information anyway. And so I did Bible college by correspondence and I worked at the church where I got mentored in preaching and leading and all of those sorts of things by wonderful people like Terry Bone. And it was just, it was the time of my life. I spent four years there and it was incredible. And there was this wonderful lady at the church. She was an older lady, a retired lady. She'd walked with Jesus for a very long time. And she was the sweetest thing, just bubbly and sweet and happy all the time. And anytime you would talk to her, whatever you were going through, whatever you were going through, she would say, he's alive, Amen. And she would just say that kind of to anything. And so if, if something good had happened, if God had answered a prayer, she'd say, oh, hallelujah, he's alive, amen? And you'd say, yes, hallelujah, he's alive. And if you were going through a hard time, if you were struggling through something, if you were going through a valley, uh, if you were going through a trial, if you were going through a dark time, she would be there with compassion and sympathy, and she would say, hey, even in this hard time, he's alive. And that was always her answer to everything. And then there were times where it didn't always exactly make sense, where you'd say, like, oh, how are you glad? Oh, yeah, the Leafs are out of the playoffs this year. We said that a lot in the early 2000s. And you'd say, the Leafs didn't make the playoffs. And she'd be like, oh, well, he's alive, amen? And it's like, yeah, it's, it doesn't really apply. I don't understand it. But yes, he is, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> Even in this trial, he is still alive. But she... It was maybe overkill a little bit, and, and yet she was just, it was so constant and real for her that whatever was happening, for the celebration of life, we're going to celebrate that he's alive, and, and for the struggles of life, we're going to find our strength in the fact that he's alive, and even in the seemingly mundane things of life like hockey playoffs, we will still celebrate he's alive, because you know what? He's alive, and she came back to it over and over and over again. And I never forgot that. And so today we gather with brothers and sisters of all tribes and tongues and languages and nations all around the world. By the millions, they are gathering. Uh, they've been gathering on the other side of the world since our yesterday. And everyone is coming together and they are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is alive. And we're going to look at a story for a little after the resurrection today. We often preach one of the gospel's resurrection stories. But we're going to go a little bit past that, a few weeks past the resurrection today in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has said to his disciples, I'm alive. He's revealed himself to them. He has said, you're going to go to the nations. You're going to bring the gospel. He has said, don't go anywhere until I pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. That one of the things Jesus said as he was getting ready to leave the world was he said, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. I will return to the Father. And then he said, I'm not going to leave you alone, though, guys. Even as I leave this earth. I will not leave you alone. And so we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is in heaven and has always been in heaven. Uh, Jesus, the Son, came to earth and lived his life on the earth, went to the cross, rose from the dead, returned to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is God's power and his presence that is here on the earth right now. 
The, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who speaks to us. He is the one whose presence we encounter. He's the one who fills us, refreshes us, teaches us, leads us, guides us. And so we take for granted, maybe, if you've walked with Jesus for a while, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he's always here. But that wasn't something that had ever happened before Jesus in that way. And so as Jesus is leaving, he says, once I leave, I will pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. And God, the Spirit, is going to come and fill you up from the inside out. And God will always be with you in that deep and powerful and intimate and connected way. And the Holy Spirit's going to come, and that's going to be how you know God. That's going to be how you hear his voice. That's going to be how you know which decision to make in life. That's going to be what empowers you and makes your words powerful and makes your actions powerful. The Holy Spirit is coming. So in Acts chapter 2, this is the story of when the Holy Spirit came, that God pours out his Holy Spirit on the believers for the first time. And as this happens in the story preceding what we're about to read, they begin to speak in different languages. They're praising God in different ways. A crowd has started to gather to see what is going on, what is happening here as the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And it's obviously getting a little uh, raucous because they're being accused of actually just being drunk outside. They're saying whatever is happening here is strange to us. And so let's pick up the story right there in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, the crowd that has gathered to see what is going on here. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a good day in church. And so there's a snapshot here of what Easter is all about. There's a snapshot in this short sermon, the short message that Peter preaches. You get kind of the, the scope of the gospel story in a nutshell, and not just the scope of what happened in the gospel of what Jesus did, but the scope of what God is doing next, of what, all, what this is all pointing to and what this is all unfolding into and why it is so important. And so as Peter begins sharing, I'm not going to hit every single verse in there. That was kind of a long passage, but as he begins sharing, he begins quoting something from an Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament had many prophets, and all of them talked about, here's what God is going to do down the road. One of them was named Joel. And through Joel, God said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And so the promise that everyone was waiting for is that there was a time coming when everyone was going to get to know God intimately. Everyone was going to be able to have a relationship with God. And that's not something that they knew before Jesus came. The Holy Spirit would come upon a few people. A few people would hear from God. A few people would know his presence. A few people would have a special relationship with him. But there's a promise that we can easily take for granted that said that a day is going to come where actually everybody will know God. It won't just be for a few special prophets. It'll be for everybody. That the Holy Spirit's coming on all people, not just the Jewish people, not just one people in one time. Everybody will be invited to experience God. And it's not just going to be for the men. The women will fully experience God. It's not just going to be for the young or the old. All ages will experience God. It's not just going to be for the seemingly wealthy and powerful. Even the servants, even the slaves will receive the same Holy Spirit that every person on earth, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of station in life, will be invited to know the Lord in a real and intimate way. That everyone will be invited to have your sins forgiven. Everyone will be invited back to the table, back to the family of God. God is looking to restore all people to himself. And so this promise comes that one day everyone will get this. And Peter stands up in our text today and says, today's the day. Because of what Jesus has done, everybody is welcome. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and there's this image of water that gets used, that just there is a pouring, there's a filling, there's a refreshing that happens. And if you've walked with Jesus, you have probably had some of those types of encounters with the Holy Spirit, where you feel refreshed, where you feel renewed, where you feel filled up. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out on everybody because of what Jesus has done. There's no qualifiers there. It's not you need to be at a certain point in your spiritual journey or you need to be the right gender or you need to be part of the, Israel, the race of Israel. Like none of that is a factor. The Spirit is being poured out on anybody who would call out to the Lord and say, I want that. Everybody is invited to experience God in that way. And the, and the little passage we just read ends in verse 21 that says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And I've dug into the Greek on that, and the word for everyone means? Everyone. 
everyone, ha, preacher jokes, ha, 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 ha. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it's available literally for everyone. There is no qualifier there. Everybody is invited. Everybody is invited to know the Lord. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what season you're in in life. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. And so he explains that that's happening, and then he explains the why. He backs up a bit. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Everyone in Jerusalem knew the story of Jesus. Whether they believed in him or not, he was big news. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so Jesus came. God showed his power through Jesus. He showed his power through signs and wonders and miracles. That was one of the ways that Jesus demonstrated that he was, in fact, from God. He was, in fact, living out what the Father wanted him to do. That was all there. And it's all leading to the cross. The cross was there, and Peter makes very clear it's actually God's design that that happened. And so the Jewish people have been horribly abused by Christians over the centuries. They've been called Christ killers. They've been called uh, the ones who betrayed the Messiah. And Peter makes very, very clear that, no, that wasn't what was happening at all, that they were involved in it. But this is God's plan. This was God's idea. There is no room for anti-Semitism if you are a Christian. There is none at all. I remember a number of years ago, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, Mel, Mel Gibson had uh, done that movie about the crucifixion, The Passion uh, of Jesus. And there was some concern, and I think legitimate concern, among some Jewish groups who said, is this going to get people mad at us like it's happened for 2,000 years? Like, is this going to be anti-Semitic? Is this going to get people angry at the Jewish people? And so Mel Gibson was interviewed, uh, I think it was by Diane Sawyer, and she was asking him about that. And he gave what was kind of the classic Christian answer, which is, no, it wasn't that the Jewish people killed Jesus. We, we all had a hand in that because he died for our sins. And so we all contributed to this. We can't blame anybody because he went to the cross for us. And that's a good answer. That's certainly a better answer than the, than the bad answer that Christians have often used in the past. And yet there's an even actually better answer than that, that yes, the Jewish people and the Roman people, Jews and Gentiles together sent Jesus to the cross. All of us in a way sent Jesus to the cross because of our sins. That is also very true. And yet the Bible also makes very, very clear that Jesus chose to go to the cross. This was his idea. And he would say in John's gospel, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. That was his decision. This was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, Peter says. The cross was his idea. And as Jesus goes to the cross, he deals with the problem of our sin, of everything that we did that broke God's laws, of everything that we did that separated ourselves from him, everything that we did to pull ourselves till we were far away, everything that we did that erected a barrier in between us and him. Jesus goes to the cross and he deals with all of it. And for a moment... It doesn't look great for the power of God, right? We sang today, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. There's a moment there, right? There's a moment on Friday. There's a moment on Saturday. There's a hopelessness there where it looks like everything has fallen apart. The one that we put all of our hope in is dead. 
the one who was supposed to restore everything has died. He's, he's literally in a tomb. He's been dead and he is buried. There's a moment of hopelessness in the Easter story, but it doesn't end in that hopelessness. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that's just one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. That's my favorite resurrection verse because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This was not some great cosmic struggle, you know. This was not some great difficult wrestling match for the Lord. We saw some family yesterday, and I was, I was wrestling on the floor with one of my nephews, and he's three. And I don't like to brag, but when it comes to wrestling, I can really destroy that kid. And so what we were doing was he would run into my lap and kind of fall into my lap, and I'd kind of bear hug him, and I'd say, you're stuck, I got you. And then he would wrestle and try to get out, and of course I would loosen my arms, and I, you know, I'm not actually going to, you know, start <laughs> wailing on the kid. And so um, I would let him escape, and he would kind of, he, then he'd break free, and he'd feel victorious, and he'd go, yeah, because he broke free from the grown-up. And so, you know, when we picture Jesus and the devil, when we picture good versus evil, I mean, almost every culture, almost every philosophy, almost every religion, almost every worldview, we have this view universally across human existence and across all time that good will triumph over evil. And I believe we have that because there's a God in heaven who has said good will triumph over evil. There is something hardwired into us, whether we know the Lord or not, that we know that's the way it's supposed to be. We know that justice is supposed to be done. We know that restoration is supposed to happen. We know that the world that we live in as it is is not the way things are supposed to be. And so when God and the devil, when God and, and darkness, when God and death face off in Jesus, in this, this life and death moment, and darkness rejoices because it looks like heaven has lost and Jesus is locked away in the tomb and the stone is rolled across it and he is as dead as dead can be we need to understand that this is not a difficult thing that happens when Jesus comes back to life this is not hard for God this is not a challenge this is death which is the the greatest tool that Satan ever had Right, Death, with all of its finality, with all of its, its just overness, with all of its closure, with all of it just being that's it. Right, Once Jesus is dead, there is nothing left he can say. There's nothing left he can do. If Satan can kill Jesus, he wins. Right, If Satan can take him out, that's it. Jesus can't teach anymore. He can't point to God anymore. He can't lead anybody to follow after him anymore. If Jesus is dead, that's it. And as that happens, and as God then begins to move through whatever miraculous thing happened in that tomb that day, we need to understand that it wasn't that God was just kind of stronger, and that's how he was able to overcome Satan. It was Satan threw his greatest weapon at Jesus, and Jesus shrugged it off because it just wasn't possible for death to win. Jesus was too big. He was too strong. He was too powerful. Just like when I'm tackling my nephew, like there's no real debate on who's going to win that wrestling match. But in this wrestling match, it just wasn't possible for death to keep its hold on him. It wasn't possible. The God of life was too strong. When Jesus came to the earth, a lot of us did not like what he had to say. 
right? Jesus came and he said, hey, there is sin and you should turn away from it. Jesus came and he said radical things like love your enemies. Don't get revenge on your enemies. Don't harm your enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus said radical things like follow after me and I am the way to heaven and, and it is right to follow after me. And if you've seen me, you've seen God. And, and he just said these things that people really, really didn't like. And today even, as those of us who follow him, Jesus says things that are challenging. We don't always like everything that Jesus said. Because Jesus calls us to take up a cross and sacrifice and follow after him. Jesus calls us to love other people and put their needs ahead of our own. Jesus calls us to love God and to follow him and obey him no matter what. We put God to death. We put God in the ground. We buried God in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And whatever we face today, everything in life gets reframed now. Whatever struggle we are facing, like that sweet old lady from my first church, whatever good thing we're celebrating, whatever difficulty we are going through, it all gets framed there. But, that but is the turning point of history, but God raised him from the dead. And so there is nothing in my life that I need to be afraid of because death has already been overcome. There is nothing in my life that is too difficult for God because death has already been overcome. And in my moments of, of hopelessness, in my moments of frustration, in my moments of fear, in my moments of doubt, in my moments of despair, I come back over and over again to that phrase, but God raised him from the dead. And because of that, everything else in my life falls into perspective. Everything gets shaped by that core conviction. He quotes, Peter quotes a little more of the Old Testament, verse 25 to 28. David, King David, said about Jesus, prophesying about him to come, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That alone is just a great verse. Because God is with me, because he's right beside me, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. And so King David, uh, that's a quote from Psalm 16, and this is written about a thousand years before Jesus walks the earth. And David is a prophet, and so he is not just talking about stuff going on in his own life. He is prophesying about the Messiah that's going to come in a thousand years. And David walked with the Lord, knew the Lord. David was a deeply flawed man. He had sin going on, major sin that he committed, uh, times of feeling close to God, times of wandering far from God, and everything in between. And yet, out of his own relationship with God, still, he is understanding, you know what? In God, there is hope. In God, I can have that trust. In God, I will not be shaken. In God, there is joy, there is peace available, there is freedom available. He is understanding all of those things. And yet, Peter makes clear David's not just talking about his own life here. He's not just talking about himself and how he understands the Lord. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. So when David is talking about, you will not abandon me to the grave, you will not let your Holy One see decay, he's not talking about himself in that moment. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. They all saw that. They had seen the resurrected Lord. 
And so we see in the Old Testament, there is sometimes a double meaning to prophecy. There's a, a literal meaning in the moment, and then there's a future meaning that is pointing to Jesus. And so David's life was not an easy life. David had lived a life of hardship, and David had to wait a long time for God to answer promises that he had made in his life. And David went through great trials. David went through great sin and, and reaped the consequences of his sin and experienced God's grace and restoration. Like David's journey sounds like a lot of ours, and his life was a life of betrayal and rejection and waiting and hoping and loneliness and struggle and then also moments of victory and, and glory and restoration and grace and all of these things and Jesus life like David the life that Jesus lived uh, he was called a man of sorrows a lot of his life was incredibly difficult Jesus too lived a life of of pain and hurt and betrayal and abandonment Jesus lived a life where those who should have loved him best often didn't and those who should have accepted him as one of the people didn't and those who he came to save would hurt him and reject him and ultimately nail him to the cross. And if it ends at the cross, Jesus has a very, very difficult and sad life. But that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that Jesus lived a difficult life, that Jesus died a terrible death. The end of the story is, but God raised him from the dead. That death is swallowed up in life, that pain is swallowed up in life, that betrayal is swallowed up in life, that hurt is swallowed up in life. For those of us who follow after him, we also follow after him in both his death and his life. That we will experience struggle and pain and suffering, but it gets swallowed up in resurrection every single time. Life is always how the story ends. It never ends with death. It ends with, but God raised him from the dead. And as he is raised, we also are raised. And sometimes we get to experience that in its fullness here on earth. Some of that we may not get to experience until eternity. But like that old song we used to sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Right? Because he's alive, because he lives, everything else comes into perspective. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And so God is in heaven, the Father is in heaven, Jesus has returned to heaven, and now he has poured out God the Spirit on the earth. And so the people in Acts 2 are seeing this and experiencing this for the first time, and this is the age that we live in right now. We live in the age of the Spirit. And the beauty of the age of the Spirit is we get to know God now. It's not just, I will see him one day in heaven, and that will be much fuller for sure at some point, but we get to experience the fullness of God now. We get to experience our sins forgiven now. We get to be welcomed back into the family now. We get to know his presence now. We get to know his voice now. We get to know his leading now. We get to know his closeness now. That started now. And we will experience it much more fully when we see him face to face in heaven and we look forward with anticipation to that day. But God has forgiven our sins and brought us back into relationship with him starting now. We get to know him now. We get to experience him now. We don't just look forward to that one day. And we can have as much of him now as we want because Jesus said the Father will pour out the Spirit without limit. Just whatever you want, however much of him you want, that is what is available. If there are any limits to our relationship with God, they're coming from us. They're not coming from him. And so we've talked about this in the last number of weeks. How hungry are you? 
How much do you want to know him? How much do you want to know his voice? How much are you desiring to press into him? And there are certainly, in our walks with Jesus, seasons of refreshing and abundance, and then there are seasons of wilderness and dryness. That's all very normal. So if you're in a dry season, I'm not putting any guilt on you at all. I have been there many times. It does happen. And our job is to persevere and press through until we find the refreshing again. But God has invited us to know these things. So we get to experience his forgiveness, his grace, his peace, his joy, his presence now by the Holy Spirit. That is there for anybody who wants it. And it's happened because God has raised him from the dead. We were dead and lost in our sins, but now God has raised him from the dead and has invited us to life with him as well. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it's not that he wasn't Lord before that. Jesus was always who he was. But now that he's died, now that he's been resurrected, now that he has been seated at the right hand of God, he is now living out all of that and he is ruling over creation as Lord and Messiah. He gets to sit down, as we talked about on Friday, because the work is done, because God raised him from the dead. If Jesus is in the tomb, there's nowhere for him to sit. There's nothing for him to do because he's dead. But he's not. God has raised him from the dead. As this message comes, verse 37, the people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We talked about repentance a fair bit in the last series. And it literally just means change. It means turn. It means change directions. And so we're on a path that we shouldn't be going. We change directions. We turn around. We're walking in sin that we shouldn't be walking in. We turn away from that. We choose a better way. So to repent is to turn. In a biblical sense, ultimately, it's meaning to find God's way, to turn away from our selfish ways, to turn away from our sinful ways, to find the Christ-like way, and to realign our lives in that direction. So there's a turning that needs to happen as we realign ourselves to him. He says, repent. And then he says, be baptized. And so I mentioned earlier, we will be having a water baptism service in June. And we don't have a lot of uh, ceremonies and rituals, what are sometimes called sacraments. We don't follow too many of those in our particular stream of the church. Other streams have many more, and we don't say that with any judgment, but we only follow two. We celebrate the Lord's Supper at communion, and we celebrate water baptism, because those are two things that Jesus specifically told us to do. And so there are other sacraments that come from tradition and church history, and, and again, no judgment on those, but as Anabaptists, we just like to stick to as much as possible what does the scripture clearly tell us to do and what does Jesus tell us to do. So Jesus told us specifically, celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, have the bread and the wine, uh, in our case we use juice, and have a time of remembrance where you remember the body that was broken, you remember the blood that was spilled. And so we do that uh, once a month typically here at Meadowbrook. And then Jesus said specifically to be baptized. And so baptism for 2,000 years has been the way that Christians tell the world, I belong to Jesus. It's a, a beautiful ceremony. It symbolizes as you go into the waters that your sins have been washed away, just like going into the pool washes the dirt off your body. Uh, it's a beautiful symbol of that. It's a symbol of being washed clean, made new, restored. Uh, if you've ever had a moment where you're feeling tired and weary and you go into the shower and you come out and you feel refreshed and invigorated, it's a symbol of life and restoration and what God is doing. And it is a way that we stand up 
up and say, this is the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life. This is how Jesus has saved my soul. This is what he has done for me. And so we share a testimony and we say, this is what happened and how I came to know the Lord. And then we are baptized in water as a symbol. It's not anything super spiritual in the act itself. You're not saved because you were baptized. But in baptism, it's we are declaring to the world, I am saved. I have been saved. And now as a symbol of that, I am being baptized. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized in water yet, that is a step that we believe every believer needs to take. And so if you're interested in that, you can let us know for our next round. And so as Peter gives that call, repent, turn away, find Jesus' way, be baptized, and as a symbol of the forgiveness of your sins, uh, then you'll receive the Holy Spirit as you walk with him and and follow after him. 3,000 people uh, end up getting saved that day. And again, that's a pretty good start for the first day of the church. You went from a couple hundred people to 3,000 very, very quickly. I'm open to that as a pastor. Were that ever to happen here? And all of it happens because of what we're celebrating today, that we all turned away from God at some point. And you often hear me quote Isaiah, who I just love the metaphor of this. We all, like sheep, have turned astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. We have all wandered away from the shepherd because we wanted to do our own thing. We have all turned away from God's ways and found sin and selfishness in one way or another. And God was not content to leave us there, wandering in the hills alone by ourselves. He was not willing to leave us exposed to death. He was not willing to leave us in that place. And so in his great love, he comes to us. And even though it was our choice, it was our doing, it was our fault, we went in that direction. He wasn't willing to leave us there. And when we were lost in our sin and lost on on our way to death, he went to the cross and dealt with our sin. And then God raised him from the dead to deal with our death. And he says, follow me and follow after me and your sins will be forgiven. Follow after me and death will not be something that you need to worry about either. Because as I was raised to life, you too will be raised to life as you follow after me. The promise, Peter says, verse 39, is for you to the crowd who's gathered there and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And again, this is a a big deal at the time. Because up until this point in history, God has primarily been dealing with Israel. The people of Israel, the Jewish people. And here and in many other places, the Bible makes clear that wasn't always how the story was going to end. That God loves Israel. They have a special place in his heart. They are the apple of his eye. And yet, he wasn't just going to save one nation. He was after the whole planet when he came to earth. And so the promise is for you, the Jewish people, for your children, but not just you, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so the message does come to everybody. It doesn't matter how far off from the Lord you feel this morning. It doesn't matter how far away from him you are. It doesn't matter how disconnected you may feel or if you're worrying about what you've done or the the weight of those things. None of that matters. The promise is for you too, for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And I just love the phrasing of that, because again, dead people can't call, right? Dead people can't speak. They can, you know, their past words can inspire us, for sure, right? We, We are inspired by Martin Luther King. We're inspired by Abraham Lincoln. We're inspired by people who've gone before us who have left a record. But it says, no, Jesus is still calling, and Jesus can still call because God raised him from the dead. 
And for those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, we have those stories. Like we, we have known his presence. We have known his voice. We have known his leading. We have known his, his miraculous ways that he's interacted with our lives. We know where he's shown up. We know where he's blessed us with different things. Jesus can do that because he's alive. He is living and he is active. And he is actively involved in this world. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to wrap up today. I end every Easter sermon with this story, so I apologize. I think this is my ninth Easter here at Meadowbrook, so you're hearing it for the ninth time if you've been at Meadowbrook for a while. But in communist Russia in the 20th century, as the Bolsheviks took over, uh, their branch of communism was a very atheistic uh, viewpoint of the world. They believed there was no God. They believed the religion was all phony, that the state was the most important thing, and so they didn't want people distracted by church or distracted by uh, trying to follow anyone other than the state, and so they worked very hard to eliminate religion and eliminate any reference to God. And so there was a leader uh, named Nikolai Bukharin, and he was doing a tour of, of Russia, and he would give speeches everywhere he went. And he would promote communism. He would promote the values that they were trying to promote. He would tear down religion, tear down the church. And so his train arrived in a small town. And many of the town had gathered in the town square. And there was a stage set up. And so Nikolai got up to address the town. And there were people of, of all different ages there. And he got up and for two hours he railed against the church. He railed against Christianity. He railed against the Bible and just sought to dismantle just any truth that people were holding in this book and in this story and in this gospel. And so for two hours, he ripped it down and did everything he could to convince the crowd that there was no God, that the Bible didn't need to be followed, that the state was the one who had the answer and the way to enlightenment. And so for two hours, he did everything he could to reach that point. And then as he always did, he said, does anyone have a rebuttal? And his experience had been that nobody ever did, that he was just so fiery and fierce and, and just no one wanted to get up after him and say anything. So he said, does anyone have a rebuttal? And it was silent for a moment. And then an Orthodox priest sat up in the front row, very elderly. He had a, a staff that he was leaning on. He was dressed in the garb of an Orthodox priest and the big bushy beard and, and all of the uh, accoutrements that go with being an Orthodox priest. And so he walked up and slowly with his staff came up the steps and came up to the stage and everyone waited to see what this wise old man was going to say what can you possibly say uh, in the, the face of that fire against everything that this priest obviously believed in and as the priest came up to the microphone he simply said three words he is risen and the crowd thundered back And that was enough. That in spite of man's best efforts for 2,000 years, there is still a church that proclaims he is risen. He is risen indeed. In spite of whether it was communism, whether it was different ideologies, different religious factors around the world, people have been trying to stamp out the gospel for 2,000 years, and there is still a church that proclaims he is risen. He is risen indeed. Because whatever his arguments were, and whatever the arguments out there are, and, and we live in a very interconnected world right now where there's arguments all over the internet, obviously, and, and wars over Twitter, over truth, and who has it right, and every 
everything else. Like we've never been so exposed to such ideas and differences. And yet, no matter how often I hear those arguments, no matter how often I encounter those people who would challenge and everything, uh, it doesn't change the fact that I have encountered the living God in my life that I have known his presence, I have known his voice, I have known his influence, I have seen my prayers answered. And even in times of doubt, and even in times of struggle, and even in times of trial, I know that my Redeemer lives. I have known him because he lives. If he's just a, a wise prophet who has passed away, I can be inspired by him, but I can't know him. But I have been in the presence of the living God. I live filled with the spirit of the living God. I have heard him speak and direct. I have seen him answer my prayers. And he can do that because he lives. And so we join today with the millions upon millions of our brothers and sisters who have a similar testimony who say, in one way or another, I have known that my sins have been forgiven. I have known the presence of the living God. I have known his word. I have known his voice. I know him because he lives. That old song we used to sing, because he walks with me and he talks with me. We used to sing that when I was a kid every Easter. And it's a bit of an old-fashioned song, but it's because he's alive. Because he lives, we can know him. And so we're going to worship. We'll wrap up with prayer in just a moment. But I'll ask you to stand with me, please as we come into the presence of the living God and as we worship the Savior who is risen.